0: Well, a number of years ago, uh, I used to live in one of these uh, neighborhoods where all the houses were like five feet apart. And uh, that was kind of great because you got to know your neighbors. And I was hanging out in the backyard with uh, my neighbor, Stephanie, uh, sitting at her little picnic table, our kids were playing. And Stephanie uh, leaned over and she said, uh, John, what what exactly is a, a Presbyterian? And, and for guys like me, you've got to understand, this is like maybe the second best question you can get next to, you know, tell me who Jesus is. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to brag, but I provided her that afternoon with a lucid, detailed uh, answer. You know, uh, I explained to her uh, the beauties of Presbyterian polity. I, pr- I, I explained to her you know, uh, the, the courts of the church and how they function in harmonious relationship with each other and, and, and the sovereignty of God and salvation and the centrality of the scriptures and, and the five solas of the, of the Reformation. And, you know, I mean, again, not to brag, but it was, it was really good. <laughs> and my sweet Jewish neighbor, Stephanie, took it all in, you know, nodded her head, uh, listened patiently as I yammered on. And then she said, interesting. Now, why don't you tell me what it really means? <laughs> you see, she, she, in saying that, was kind of cutting through, you know, the explanation of Presbyterian to get to the actual experience of, of you know, this oddball Presbyterian pastor who lived next door with the four kids. She wanted to know what that meant. Now, for five chapters in this letter, Paul has been doing a lot of explaining. He's been explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ to this little church in Rome. And he's, he, in fact, along the way, has summarized that gospel uh, a number of times. He, he did that in chapter 3 when he, when he said that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus He did it again in chapter 4 where he said to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justified the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Those are gospel summaries. All along, he's been hammering home the reality that that the gospel is good news, that this is the good news of a righteousness received, not earned, given by grace. So, you know, while the first part of this book of Romans has been all about what God has done for people who put their faith in Jesus, now the focus in chapter six is shifting um, to what God is doing through his people who have put their faith in Jesus. We're, We're going from explanation to the experience of living this out. And it's really impossible to overstate what a radical idea the idea of a received righteousness is. Received instead of earned. What what we call justification by faith. It was radical then and it's radical now. Because, you know, at the end of the day, and, and, you know, I'm I'm really not oversimplifying this, there are two religions. There's Christianity and there's everything else. Um, In every, every other religion, every other philosophy, every other worldview, in some way or another, will... Demand of you and me that we earn our righteousness. That we earn it. You know, whether, you know, that, that you and I please the deity or get at peace with ourself in some way where we're doing what is necessary to, to pull that off. You know, so you've got to complete the five pillars. You've got to get right with the universe. You've got to get woke. You've got to get on the right side of history. You've got to align your chi. You've got to recycle Something. <laughs> to earn the righteousness, right? Somehow, some way. But, but, but Paul comes along and he says, because the gospel isn't the story of what you've got to, to do to be good or to get into God's graces, but it is instead the story of what God has done for you through grace in Jesus Christ. And that means something really profound. That means that there is no work good enough to earn you righteousness before a holy God. And at the same time, there is no sin bad enough that would exempt you from it. There, there's nothing so good that you can do that would earn you the righteousness, and then there's no sin so bad that would exempt you from God's grace. And, and so right before this, right before this chapter we're looking at, Paul summarizes that. And, and he summarizes it in that, that idea in this way. He says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now I just want you to take that in for a second. Because that's a that, that can be a bit of a troubling statement. A statement like that might get you asking questions like the one my neighbor put to me. Like, okay, if I actually believed that, if I actually lived that, if I actually believed that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, what would it look like for what, what would my life look like to live that way? If I, if I believe that Jesus did everything for me in salvation by grace, not only taking away all my F's, but giving me all his A's so that good works earn me nothing in salvation, even as sin doesn't exempt me from salvation, does that mean that I, the more I sin, the more grace I get? You know, can I get on board with Mark Twain who says, I love to sin, God loves to forgive the world is admirably arranged. <laughs> now you heard this read earlier and you might, be, you might be looking at this text now and you know that Paul actually answers that question very immediately, very definitively. But before I get to that, I just want to wanna pa- hit the pause button and I want to notice something. Um, and that is to say that wherever the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, as Paul has preached the gospel faithfully in these first five chapters of this book, questions like this are necessarily prompted. And I'll just tell you, in my own life as a pastor, I worry um, if, if I'm not asked this question periodically, if someone doesn't say from time to time, wait, wait, wait a second, do you mean to tell me that if I become a Christian, all I have to do is believe in Jesus and I get to come into such freedom that I get to do whatever I want? Is that true? Seriously? Seriously? If I don't hear that question, I I worry that I have not faithfully presented the gospel because I think the gospel prompts that question. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that if your presentation of the gospel does not expose it to the charge of antinomianism, it's a fancy word for saying not taking God's law seriously, you're probably not putting it correctly. But even as the gospel prompts that question, even as it forces it, it gets... getting you to wonder if, you know, okay, wait a second, does that mean the more I sin, the more grace I get? Even as it puts that question to it, the question at the same time reveals a fundamental misunderstanding about the gospel. So Paul repudiates it unconditionally and immediately. He says, you know, by no means. No way, not at all. Now, having said by no means, what you might expect is for his next move to, you know, for him to complete the thought by going on to say, of course you can't take the grace thing too far. You know, um, we've got to rein it in. It has to be tempered with some rules and some guidelines, a little bit of law so it doesn't get out of control. But wildly, instead of doing that, he doesn't rein it in with rules. He runs right back to grace. Grace. He wants us to see grace as grace. He deals, in other words, with misunderstanding the gospel by going right back to the gospel. So right at this place where, you know, you and I might be kind of primed to get, you know, to kind of go, okay, I I see how grace can get out of control, so give me my marching orders that would keep me from sinning so that grace would abound. Paul instead says uh, he doesn't unlock the unlimited potential of the human spirit and tell us what rules we ought to be following. The next thing he says is, in in fact, you can't do that because we died. We died to sin. The good news that came by way of what God did in Jesus Christ by grace through faith is applied to us through what God does through Jesus Christ by grace through faith. Justification by faith, sanctification by faith. Now, there's a lot of Christians in this room, I know, and, and everybody's got a story um, of how they became a Christian, ranging from some people who have no memory of that, uh, feel that they've known Jesus their whole life, to others who have, you know, maybe recently become Christians. There's all kinds of, there's a huge range of stories there, but, but overarching every Christian story is a single story. There is a through line. And it's the story of the gospel, and it begins here. It begins with, we died to sin. And to understand what that means, I think we need to understand first what that doesn't mean. what what died to sin doesn't mean is on the one hand that've um, that, that sin has been totally removed from us. Um, neither does it mean that, that You know, because we've died to sin, we've suddenly been infused with this great resolve to fight it. And I want to be clear, because certainly when people come to faith in Christ, they get the Holy Spirit, and uh, the Holy Spirit is at work to sanctify and apply the gospel so that sin does decrease over time and righteousness grows. Um, and, And along the way, you are able to resist sin in a way that you weren't able to before. That's true. But in this place, when Paul says we died to sin, he's not talking about the progressive work of sanctification. He's talking about the definitive act of justification. And I think that's an important distinction. So, you know, first of all, died to sin doesn't mean that that sin is just removed from your life. Totally. That we're set free from the presence of it. Um, If if that were true, Paul wouldn't, wouldn't have to say a few verses later that we shouldn't let sin reign in our mortal bodies or obey its passions, or present our members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. If it wasn't there, he wouldn't have to give those instructions, but it is there. You know, and, and even if for some strange, in, strange reason you yourself imagine that sin has been totally removed from your life, just ask anyone who knows you and they will tell you that's not true. Um, so, so we know that's not true, but also sin, died to sin doesn't mean that you've just been given, you know, fresh resolve to fight it. Um, the idea that sin is removed from your life really goes too far because sin is still there. And the idea that that it merely means we're equipped with greater resolve to fight against it doesn't go far enough because sin's too much for us, right? We can't handle it. So Paul is saying God has done a greater work than that in justifying you by faith through grace. Greater than than, you know, some imaginary removal or some infusion of resolve. He's done a work of redemption through the Savior who performs a work of rescue and brings you into his kingdom to reign over you graciously. You might remember that that, that, that's how Paul talks about it in chapter 5. He explains that sin reigned in death. Grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul, Paul is stating that as something that's actually happened. It's like when I was at the Bruce Springsteen concert and it was over and I turned to my wife and I go, that happened. Can't believe I just saw that. It happened. By faith in Christ, through grace, believers are taken, as Greg was saying last week, out of Adam and into Christ, transferred from the kingdom of death and condemnation into the kingdom of Jesus and life. And we need to see this because we're, you know, we're so used to talking about the gospel in terms of the forgiveness of sin only which is appropriate, but it's not enough. The gospel indeed is a gospel of the forgiveness of sin, but it is also a gospel of freedom from sin. Freedom. Because Christians are not only forgiven, but free. It means their relationship to sin has completely changed. So so even though it's still present, even though it, it will afflict you, It will allure you and me. It will influence us. We're no longer given over to it because we've been rescued. And because we're not given over to it, it means we don't have to give in to it. While we we are for a time left in our sin, we're no longer left to it. In Christ, you've died to sin, and so now sin can be dead to you. But then, you know, you might be wondering, what exactly do Christian how exactly do Christians die to sin? What does that mean? Well, in verse 3, Paul begins to answer that question with another question. Uh, And here's the question: Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Uh, You die to it through a baptism. Now the word for baptism in the Greek is one of those really rich words that has a range of meanings. Um, But but here it's really being used to refer to something that has been drowned to death, that has been sunk to the bottom of the sea. Uh, Much as it pains me as a Presbyterian pastor to admit this, Paul is not talking about baptism in terms of sprinkling. He's talking about it in terms of immersion, of being sunk to the bottom of something. Uh, baptism, Paul brings up, uh, because it is a sign. It points to a spiritual reality. It's pointing to, as the Lord's Supper uh, does, it points to our salvation. Um, but it's striking, you know, that Paul in this text never actually mentions the water of baptism, and he doesn't because he's not zeroing in on, on the ritual of baptism. He's really zeroing in on the spiritual reality to which baptism points. Um, now, you know, churches perform baptisms all the time. I, I've done you know, dozens, if not hundreds of them in my ministry career. I'm sure Greg has as well. You guys have seen them. Um, you know, whether the person is young or old, it's, it's almost always and appropriately a celebratory thing. Um, when babies are involved, it's, it's, it's sort of doubly great because it's not just celebratory, it's also really cute. And, you know, but what can be lost, I think, in, in the cuteness and in the celebration is something that's absolutely essential to a fulsome understanding of baptism. And that is that, that, that there, there is within this sacrament some sober realities. Uh, it's pointing to newness of life, but it is newness of life that has come out of certainty of death. At the risk of stating the obvious, you know, salvation means being saved from something. Um, and what Paul is pointing to is, is, is if you're a Christian, you have undergone a baptism in which you have been saved from a certain terrible death. So, you know, the Bible is punctuated with baptism stories that aren't just stories of the ritual being performed like we do it in church, but, but stories that point to the reality of what God does in saving his people. Noah and his family went through a baptism when God put them in the ark and the whole world around them was destroyed. Moses led Israel in a baptism through the Red Sea being kept safe while, while there was death and destruction all around them. You know, Jonah endured a baptism in the, in the, in the, fish, in the fish's belly in the darkest depths of the sea. So, so, you know, this baptism is a sacrament which points to a salvation in which people are united to Jesus and his church, out of Adam, and death, and sin, and the kingdom of death, into salvation, life, Christ, the kingdom of life. Like Noah and his family in the ark, like Jonah and the fish. And because we're you're, you're united to Christ, you're joined to him, what is true of Jesus is true of you. It's true of his people. That means that because death wasn't the end for Jesus, it's not the end for his people. Um... Jesus rose from death to newness of life. Christians come out of the death of the old life, so that as Paul puts it here, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So, back to the question he asked at the beginning. You know, this idea of cheapening grace, sinning all the more that grace may abound. You know, given all of that, that becomes not only unthinkable but ultimately impossible because we're as surely united to Christ as Noah and his family were in the boat. That is what God has done if you have been justified by grace through faith. The old self, the old life has been killed so that the body of sin might be done away with. Now, again, you know, Paul kind of brings in some challenging uh, terminology. He talks about the old self and the body of sin, but but I just want to kind of simplify it by saying he's just reiterating here with, with different language what he's been saying all along, that what God has done through Christ changes everything in your life. The fact of the old self dying with Christ quite literally gets fleshed out in how we live in daily life. So that when sin gets its grip on you and me, and we give in to it, the consequences of that, you know, are worked out in this, what Paul calls the body of sin. You know, in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. In, in real life, not in some spiritual cloud, you know, but, but in how we live, and we've got to be careful here because Paul says, you know, God is bringing that body of sin to nothing. And, and when, you, when you hear that, you kind of go, okay, um, here we go with the Christian moralistic piety. I've got to stop drinking wine. I've got to stop, you know, watching movies or whatever. You know, all the, desi- all, all the desire, all the physical pleasure, all of that has to be brought to an end. But in fact, what Paul is driving at here. Is something quite the opposite. Nothing could be further further from the truth. The goal of bringing the body of sin to nothing is not not so that that all pleasure would die, but he goes on to say that so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And you know, despite what Madison Avenue has been telling you and me for a hundred years, sin is not pleasure. Sin is slavery. The path of gospel growth doesn't go in the direction of less pleasure. It actually leads you in the direction of more pleasure because while sin leads to death and despair, the gospel brings life abundant. So if you've died to sin, that means death is behind you so that you can get on with, Paul says, freedom, living, joy. You know, uh, in the last few years, I have performed both my grandfather's and my father's funeral and, you know, uh, both my grandfather and my father were Christians, and I was able to say to those people, listen, what you all need to understand, even as we grieve, is that these, these men died long ago. And they made a start on the life that they are now more fully enjoying in Christ. Right? Those are the, that's, the, that's the terminology. That's the stuff Paul's working with. And look where it goes in verses 8 and 9. There's this one-two punch You know, of of we believe and we know. That's the drumbeat. We believe and we know that what? The power of Christ's resurrection has triumphed and will triumph. Again, not in some, you know, ethereal spirit cloud, but Paul actually says it will triumph in us. And that capital L, life, the power of Christ's resurrection coming to triumph in your life, comes by way of believing and knowing. Believing and knowing is a big deal in the Bible. Uh, Paul's so determined that we avail ourselves of the fullness of the gospel that that resurrection life would actually be ours, that in verse 11 he issues a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. If you're a Christian, you've got to do this. So, what's the command? The command in verse 11 is this. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, our translation renders this word, consider ourselves. Um, it's one word in Greek. Um, it, it, there's a good case to make that this may be among the most important words in the whole book of Romans. It's, it occurs 20 times in this letter. But what consider yourselves here doesn't mean I'm going to scratch my, my chin and think about some stuff. It's not merely that. It's a very forceful word. And, and it's a word that means reckon. Reckon with something. Reckon with what? Reckon with reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing in the world because even though Christians are children of God, there's plenty of experience in us that would have us doubt it, right? Uh, we, we feel that. Uh, you know, on a, on a Wednesday morning when you're showing up to your cubicle or whatever and you just feel like, am I a child of God here? Um, I feel the yawning gap between my experience and my thoughts and my feelings and, you know, who I actually am in Christ according to what the Bible tells me. So Paul says the solution to that, bridging that gap, is reckoning with the gospel. Reckon with it. Get trued up to who you actually are in Christ. Now, there's a movie that pictures this beautifully. Um, it's a movie called Fifty First Dates. I referred to it as a Christian movie in the first service, but it's not actually a Christian movie, but there's some great Christian principles in it. It's an Adam Sandler movie. It's got Drew Barrymore in it, and it's a love story. And you kind of watch this movie there in Hawaii, and there's this great falling in love. And I mean, it's just a dream. You can't imagine the depth of love that just, you know, it's like love at first sight, but there's a huge problem. And that's that the woman played by Drew Barrymore has severe amnesia. So, you know, even though he has wooed her the day before and they fall deeply in love, she wakes up every day and doesn't recognize this man who has loved and cared for her so deeply. And so, you know, he shows up to the house and she treats him like an intruder. You know, she beats him with a baseball bat and runs him off her property. And so he's got a problem on his hands. What's he supposed to do? He's madly in love with her. They have a history You know, she keeps forgetting all about that history of his love for her. So what does he do? He makes a tape, a videotape. And from then on out, every day, he shows up at her house. He reintroduces himself. He sits her down, and he plays the tape. And the tape is replete with scenes of, of how he has wooed her and loved her and cared for her and cherished her for a long, long time. What's he doing? He's doing the work of reckoning. He, he's reminding her of who he is, of who she is in relationship to him. He is showing her that the reality of the depths of his love for her so that be, because she forgets it so easily, she's an amnesiac. And so Paul, when he brings in this to command, command to consider yourselves dead to Christ, dead, dead to sin and alive to Christ, he's doing the same thing. And the reason he's doing that is because you and I are afflicted with spiritual amnesia. We're like marionettes, you know, who were controlled by sin, and all those strings were being pulled and moving us around, and then God, by grace, comes in and cuts the strings, sets us free. We're alive, but the old movements feel good. We're used to those, that way of maneuvering, right? And God has to remind us, because we forget the gospel, know who we are, who he is, his great love for us. And because we forget the gospel, we can't run to the law. We can't run to the rules to work it out. We go back to the gospel and reckon with that. We get true to it so that through it, we're reminded of who we are, who God is, who we are in relation to him, looking again and again to how he has loved us to the very depths of Remembering that we're dead to sin, alive in him, liberated from the reign and dominion of sin that brings misery and death. And we're under a new king. We have a whole new identity. You know, I think one of the really great, truly great holidays in this country is a holiday called Juneteenth. It's not officially recognized. Um, It's celebrated almost exclusively in the African-American community but it's the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States. It commemorates uh, June 19th, 1865, when Major General Gordon Granger landed in Galveston, Texas and he landed there with news. And the news was that the Civil War was over and that those who were once slaves are free. Now that happened two and a half years after Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation factually, legally made all slaves free. And yet that proclamation had not taken effect in Texas because there, there were hardly any Union troops around to enforce it. But with the surrender of the Confederate forces in April of 1865 and the arrival of General Granger's regiment in Texas came the reckoning. The announcement that a new regime is in power. A new reality has changed your identity. You're no longer slaves, you're free. And and I've I've tried to imagine, you know, what that um, was like to experience, not only when you heard the announcement, but what it was like to live after that. You know, even as these slaves had become legally free, you know, the old masters were still lurking around. You can imagine, you know, what it must have been like to find yourself in the presence of the person that used to claim to own you. The person that would control you, the person that would beat you, and subjugate you and demean you to do their bidding, or else. I can't imagine what it would be like in the presence of that person. You'd begin to tremble. You'd begin to fear the punishments that might, might, you know, fall on you. You might even begin to lock into the old patterns, right, of servitude. Wonder, you know, wondering whether or not you'd be, you're about to be sold off. Until, you know, until you remember. The reckoning, the reality that you have now a new identity on you. You remember that the war has been won, that you are free, that the that that the old master no longer has a claim on you. You see, there's a way to live as a slave experientially, even though you're not one legally. I think Paul is issuing this command because he says that is the most tragic thing in the world. To not live with with your new identity. So he commands that we reckon with the liberating, life out of death, united with Jesus' reality that would enable us to stare down the slave master of sin that would treat you and me like a piece of meat, like its property. That would dehumanize us. That would devalue us. That would demean us, and ultimately destroy us. And and stare that slave master in the face and say, there has been a reckoning because King because of King Jesus, my liberation has come, and I am free, and I won't live for that anymore. The passage ends with what at first seems like Paul, you know, just kind of reiterating what he's already said, kind of emphasizing it. He begins. You know, with a, with, a, with a great encouragement, a great assurance that because of everything he said about the gospel, sin will have no more dominion over you. Now, if you were just doing Bible Mad Libs and didn't know the next part of that phrase, you might fill it in by saying, you know, sin will have no dominion of you over you because you're no longer subject to its power or something like that. But Paul doesn't actually say that. Uh, he doesn't say, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're no longer subject to his power. He says instead, sin will have no more dom- no dominion over you because you're not under law, you're under grace. Paul equates being under sin with being under the law. And you gotta ask why. Well, he puts it that way because he's determined what we know resides at the heart of sin itself. What drives it? What's at the root and at the root of it all is self-justification. At the root of it all is this deep motive which goes back as old as Adam that would insist that I know what's good for me, that I will determine what makes for my life, that I will define my own identity and my own worth, and I will set out to make a life for myself on my own terms. And how that looks, it can manifest itself in the ways that you know, look really rebellious, It can also manifest itself in ways that are very religious. Just so long as you and I are kept at the center and Jesus is marginalized. The law was given to send you to Jesus. It was never meant to save you. Well, was a wonderful gift in showing you the holiness of God. It's a wonderful gift in revealing the depth and the damage of our own sin in light of his holiness so that we would cry out for a Savior. But it, it is itself a terrible Savior. You know, I can't put my hope in getting a righteousness for myself because the gospel tells me that the days of me trying to meet the demands of a holy God are over because Jesus has met them for me. So don't look to your own righteousness. Run to Jesus. Don't run to the rules. Run to the gospel. As Martin Luther put it, he said, hearken to the gospel. The gospel that teaches me not what I ought to do, for that's the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. That he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel wills me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article of the gospel well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. You guys are hearing a sermon right now, and you know you may be getting at the place where you're ready to not be hearing a sermon. Um, but, you know, can I urge you, in light of everything that's Paul said, in light of the command to reckon with the gospel, to make it your business to be here every week, if you're able, to hear the gospel preached. But, but not only that, but to also preach it to yourself every day. Preach it to one another every day. You know, can I, can I encourage you to... To hearken to it, to work it into your thoughts, to get it into your conversation, to tell to that friend who's discouraged and feeling abandoned and alone, you are a child of God. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. You're not an orphan. You're beloved. God's loving you right now to call each other, to text each other, to do whatever you can to remind yourself and one another, if you're a Christian, that because of the powerful grace and the great love of King Jesus, you can stare at the slave master of sin in the eye and say that your liberation has come, that you're forgiven, that you're freed, that you're adored as a son and a daughter, and you will not live the old life anymore because new life has come in Jesus. That's what it really means to not only know about Jesus, to not only have received a sufficient explanation of Jesus, but to actually experience him together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this good word. Thank you for hearkening us to the gospel. Give us grace to reckon with it. Um, Holy Spirit, would you do that work in us? We're not even sufficient for that. Would you haunt us this week? Would you pursue us? Would you use this body of Christ, uh, to love one another deeply, the, deeply from the heart unto Christ. Lord, build up not only this people here, but would we bring others in? Would we um, repudiate the damnable lie of the devil that would tell us that sin is good and that godliness is misery? Would we um, go out from here as those well-fed sharing the good news with one another and with others who are far off that they might come near and find life in you. To the glory of your name, to the good of Santa Fe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.